It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So before we get started, we've actually got a special offer for Reconsider listeners. Now, as you guys know, uh, Xander and I love the great works of philosophy, political theory, and literature throughout the ages. We both think that it's been foundational in our understanding of politics throughout history and today. So our special offer today is for those who are interested in developing a habit of reading classic books by authors such as Homer, Nietzsche, Cicero, Spinoza, and more. To do that, you can go to OnlineGreatBooks.com. OnlineGreatBooks.com is designed to help you develop a regular habit of reading the great books. Weekly reading goals, reading reminders, accountability tools, and a dedicated community of fellow readers help you keep on track and on schedule with your reading. The OnlineGreatBooks.com check-in and reading goal system is designed to help you progress through the great books with just three one-hour reading sessions each week. And every month, OnlineGreatBooks.com ships a carefully selected edition of one of the great books directly to your home. They begin with Homer and progress through works like Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Shakespeare, and up through the moderns. Each month, you'll meet in a two-hour video conference to discuss your text with a small community of readers in a Socratic seminar led by a trained Socratic host. So go to OnlineGreatBooks.com to join the VIP list and you'll receive for free an executive book summary, a digest of the reading list, and more. If you're interested in developing a lifelong habit of reading and studying the great books, go to onlinegreatbooks.com and do please enter the promo code REC to get 25% off your first three months. Again, that promo code is REC. All right, everyone, we're now going to take a quick break to have a chat with uh, Carlos Lara and Robert Murphy of the Lara and Murphy Report. They have their own podcast on economics, um, but also do a lot of work in the field. So they have a lot of experience that they're going to be sharing with us. We are going to let these guys speculate a little bit about the future with some of our questions, um, kind of just for fun, but also to get a good sense of how, in particular, the Austrian economic framework works when trying to understand economics, because any of these sciences are only useful if we have a decent shot at predicting the future with them. The Austrian perspective is obviously the heterodox perspective on economics compared to the more orthodox perspectives that we tend to hear. You've heard us say the word Austrian quite a bit in some of the past few shows on economics, and you're going to be hearing a little bit more of what that means today. They are the co-hosts of the Laura Murphy Report, which gives you the Austrian economic perspective on current events in the economic world. Carlos Lara is the CEO at United Services and Trust Corporation, and Robert Murphy is a professor at Texas Tech University, as well as co-host of the Contra Krugman podcast, which, as the name suggests, is a weekly refutation of Paul Krugman's New York Times column. Um, Robert and Carlos, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Glad to do it. So in the last episode, we talked about the gold standard. So the Gold Reserve Act of 1934 came up, and then we delved into a little bit about different explanations for the Great Depression. Perhaps the most well-known is World War II saved the country, otherwise nothing would have happened. Another, which certainly does not fall within the Austrian school, is that the Gold Reserve Act of 1934 
allowed the U.S. government to implement a looser monetary policy that was restricted when the gold standard was in place. What's the Austrian explanation for how the U.S. worked its way out of the Great Depression? Okay, sure. So I'll jump in. Um, and incidentally, I have a, a book on um, the politically incorrect guide to the Great Depression and the New Deal. Th- this is Robert Murphy speaking for your listeners. And where we go over all this stuff, and I contrast the, the Keynesian, the Austrian, but also the Chicago School explanations. That's so awesome. In, in the Austrian vision, <laughs> well, I think so. That's why I wrote it. Uh, but yeah, and so in, in the Austrian view, it, it was – uh, the, the Federal Reserve in the 1920s had an easy, uh, you know, artificially low interest rate policy that helped fuel this big stock bubble that then burst in 29. And so in the Austrian story, I mean, that's the normal pattern of the of the business cycle. The boom bust is caused. There's an unsustainable boom caused by the central bank. Uh, and then there has to be a bust. And then the question is, you know, so why did the bust turn into what we now call the Great Depression? And there, ironically, Herbert Hoover had the most interventionist policies of any U.S. president in peacetime up to that point. So we sort of have this myth that Herbert Hoover was a laissez-faire, do-nothing guy. But on the contrary, he did a lot. And in particular, um, he called in all the big business leaders and labor unions and urged them to keep wages high because Hoover had this idea that falling wages we would do would just lead to a vicious downward spiral like oh you cut wages and the workers don't have enough money to spend and then your revenue falls and it's just not and so he thought we'll nip it in the bud but if you think about it as prices are plummeting the last thing in the world you want to do is prop up nominal wage rates because then it makes labor artificially more expensive and so that's uh, you know and i give statistics and so forth in the book but that's the explanation for what happened is that um you know in previous cycle you know in other words we were on the gold standard for a long time. It's not like this was the first crisis under the gold standard. So what was different this time? It was that wage rates weren't allowed to fall. And in contrast, the 1920 and 21 depression, which a lot of people don't even know about, but there is such a thing and that, you know, if you Google it, you'll find it. Prices fell faster over the 12 month period than in any 12 month period during the thirties, but it's, but wages fell even quicker. And so that's why the 2021 depression it was really bad, but it was over pretty fast. And then we had what's called the Roaring Twenties. So again, I would say that it's not the gold standard's fault. It's the gold standard coupled with interventionist policies to prop up wages that really spelled disaster in the 30s. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add a bit of explanation and then check my understanding uh, just for our listeners who don't know as much about economics. So what you're saying is that uh, because Hoover, in, in the Austrian explanation, Hoover implemented policies that kept wages high and and high wages meant that the um, even though there was a large supply of available labor, there was a decrease in demand for labor because of the the depression itself. And that would have been self-correcting had wages dropped because when when the price of a good, in this case, labor drops, the demand goes up for it. But in this case, Herbert Hoover prevented the price of labor for dropping. So we weren't able to see a commiserate increase in demand to put that labor back to work. Is that, is that more or less correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So again, just think about it. It's not in order for a business to be willing to hire a worker. It has to be that, Oh, the amount of wages I pay is going to get me some product that I can then sell for enough money to at least cover those wages. And so it is true that because of the gold standard, and you know there were runs on banks, and we can talk about that if you want. But the, the overall quantity of money in the U.S. did shrink by about a third from 1929 to 33. And so, yes, that made prices fall. But the reason that led to the highest unemployment rate in U.S. history is because wages weren't allowed to fall. And so workers had to keep getting paid the same number of dollars per hour, even though the stuff they were producing, the price of that kept falling. So that's what spelled high unemployment, whereas in previous panics or, or depressions with a small d, um, yeah, the price level would still fall a lot when there was a crash, but wages would fall too. So it still made sense to hire workers because they right. got cheap as well. And so what would the Austrians say was the trigger that finally got the United States out of the Great Depression? Because as we mentioned on a previous 
uh, episode, we had a double dip, right? We had the the nominal GNP, gross national product, going up, and then it crashed again, I think, in 1936. What was the thing that finally got it out and, like, into the boom times of the 1950s? Okay, sure. So, I mean, that's a complex question, and people will differ. Even self-described Austrians might have slightly different tastes. Sure. Um, what I what I like um, the, the work of Bob Higgs or Robert Higgs, um, uh, economic historian who started out as a as a conventional uh, you know mainstream economist and then um, gravitated more and more towards the Austrian approach. Um, he he thinks a big thing. Well, well, let me just back up. For one thing, it clearly wasn't the New Deal. It clearly wasn't that FDR got us out of the depression because he came in. He won the thirty two election. Came in in early thirty three. Mm-hmm. Clearly, the U.S. was still, as you guys said. You and we had the double dip, you know, later in 37, 38. And so clearly the U.S. was still mired in the Great Depression, which most people consider to be throughout the 30s. So it wasn't the New Deal. Uh, Now, some people say, oh, it was World War II. But again, even there, if you look at statistics like private sector consumption per capita, it was actually lower in World War II than it had been at the depths of the Great Depression. Right. And so, which makes sense because a lot of materials getting siphoned off for the war effort. Right. So the average person on the home front, you know, they were having meat rationed and women couldn't get, you know, stockings and so forth. So the average person was living very, uh, a very austere lifestyle. But what I, what I think happened is if you think about it, after the war, the New Deal was over. Right. And a lot of the, the, the New Deal controls on industry were lifted because, you know, the Roosevelt administration, and this is what Higgs's uh, point was. The Roosevelt administration could see that like all the cartelization schemes and whatever were restricting output was was making industry and, and labor very inefficient in the late 30s. It wasn't working. And so then when we realized, oh, wow, we have to go fight the Nazis in Imperial Japan, they realized we need big business on our side. We need them to be cranking out tanks and, and bombers and so forth and ammunition. And so the Roosevelt administration dropped its hostility to big business and actually you know, sort of loosened up a little bit and just started giving huge, you know, wartime orders. So, so I, w- what I would say now, this is me speaking, is it was basically you got the, the government out of the way. That that was really, when you say, what was so different in 1946 that hadn't been true from like 1930 to that point was finally the government got out of the way. Whereas even under the Hoover administration and certainly under FDR, the, we had the most interventionist government in U.S. history up to that point. And so if you think if you think socialism, if you think outright central planning doesn't work, you shouldn't be shocked that under the New Deal, when Washington was trying to micromanage the economy, that also was a very bad economy. So let's take some of those ideas and refocus to modern times then. And maybe, Carlos, I can pose this question to you. The Great Recession was treated by the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government with a bailout with very loose monetary policy, several rounds of quantitative easing, which uh, is just a form of bond buying by the Federal Reserve. And now some metrics in the U.S. economy, some would say, look quite positive. Unemployment is low. Uh, Corporate profits are are high. Uh, Equity valuations are quite high right now. Um, What, what, from an Austrian perspective, would you say is is going on here? Okay, well... The best way I can answer this, uh, and I have to do it my way, first of all, Bob, for sure, is probably one of the best Austrian scholars that we have today, whereas I am an Austrian uh, uh, student. I'm a student of Austrian economics. I came into this thing from an unusual uh, way in that, uh, first of all, I'm a businessman, and uh, Back uh, during the 1980s, um, uh, we had a we had a, a tax reform act very similar to what we just went through. It was the 1986 uh, tax reform act, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, obviously, it was done, you know, to to bring the tax code in, in more in line. It was during the Reagan years. But at that time, there were a lot of, uh, of businesses that were tied to to real estate, and so uh, there were there were sort of like a lot of uh, use of tax shelters using real estate, and a lot of a lot of businessmen were involved, and I was involved in that sort of thing. Now, <clears throat> all of a sudden, when this this tax uh, this tax law came into effect, we had major bankruptcies 
uh, all over the country. Uh, business owners uh, and, and were filing for bankruptcy. Uh, the, the 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 residential real estate market crashed. The commercial real estate market crashed, and then that's when we had uh, the big stock market crash, the worst ever in history, where the stock market dropped 500 points in one single day, and really scared the devil out of everybody, including myself. Now, <clears throat> I didn't understand how that happened. I had no idea. Now, I went to business school, and I, I, was, I learned economics, but what the economics I learned never taught me about these booms and busts. I had no idea that they even existed. And so it was really uh, this, this quest to figure out what had happened to me. I started realizing that these crashes that occur and they they just don't mysteriously fall out of the sky. I mean, these things are actually created. And so that quest to learn how that happened uh, was, you know, took many years, but that's what eventually led me uh, to the Austrian School of Economics. And it was through the Austrian School that I learned exactly how it is that the Federal Reserve you know, manipulates the interest rate and expands credit uh, in the economy and learn exactly how they do it using the commercial banking system. <laughs> and so uh, before I met Bot, Bob in 2008, early 2008, uh, I was researching, uh, trying to understand how it was that the Federal Reserve did this, this, this sort of stuff because I knew that the average person didn't understand it. And I had some of the best financial gurus that money can buy looking over my shoulder, and they had no idea when that particular crash happened, and they had no idea what happened in the 2008 financial crisis. It all of a sudden it took everybody by surprise. And so I had started in 2007 reading, you know, some of Bob's work uh, that, that he had done uh, on Murray Rothbard's uh, work, Man, Economy, and State, also Human Action by Mises, and I began to piece together exactly how it is that the Federal Reserve, you know, in conjunction with the government, you know, basically manipulates the interest rate, lowers that interest rate, and is able to expand credit in the economy, obviously increasing the money supply, and causes these artificial booms to happen. And so once I learned that picture and how it worked, I started going around the country uh, giving a PowerPoint presentation to commercial bankers and showing them what it is that they do. And you know what? They didn't even know that that's what they did. And they put me on a speaking circuit, speaking to more of these bankers. And, of course, when we had the financial crisis, what, what does Ben Bernanke do? But he, he basically it, it does the same thing. He increases it even more. I mean, he not only lowers the interest rate even further than Greenspan did it, I mean, he he pushed it way down and has held it down and then began this massive QE buying of bonds. And, of course, this is why we find ourselves today in the situation that we have where we've got this uh, an incredible amount, amount of, uh, of, of bonds out there and now, of course, they're going to start the unwinding process. <laughs> they're going to they're going to unload uh, that four and a half trillion dollars worth of bonds back out into the marketplace. So it's going to be the reverse of that. So when I start seeing these kinds of things happen, you know, I get very worried about you know what what's coming up ahead. And and so what I'm saying here, uh, mostly guys, is that the thing about Austrian economics is that it teaches the layperson. You know, it, it, what, what, what is fundamentally at work here is the government and the Federal Reserve, you know, working in the symbiotic relationship that basically has virtual control over our entire money system. And so these, these booms, these busts, you know, this, they just don't mysteriously happen. They are literally created. So I think one of the, the central tenets to, to that interpretation is that Today, some sort of interventionist policies by the Federal Reserve or the U.S. government are creating some some sort of asset bubble, which will exacerbate the downturn whenever that bust does come. So, 
know, for a lot of folks out there who really didn't think about things like asset bubbles before the 0809 uh, recession happened, when everyone still thought that real estate prices could only go up forever, are now thinking, you know, what what asset class is experiencing the bubble now? How would you try, attempt to answer that question? Well, I would definitely say that we have a, you know, a bond bubble for sure. I mean, because not only has uh, the Federal Reserve here in the United States, you know, amassed an enormous amount of bonds on its balance sheet, but so has all uh, uh, all of Europe. The European Central Bank has done the very same thing. So we've got a world of, of quantitative easing <laughs> that uh, first started with, with the Fed and carried over into Europe. And uh, and now we've got the Fed ready to unload all those bonds. Yeah, so it's a reverse of QE. And then you were starting to hear now that the Euro- European Central Bank is also going to unload a bunch of bonds. And so you start wondering, you know, when would the when will will the waning toward buying U.S. bonds, you know, stop? You know, with so many of it, so much of it's going to be unloaded on the marketplace, you know. But you know, I don't know. I can't answer that question necessarily. But there's definitely a huge bomb bubble. Yeah, yeah, and also, I mean, different things too. That just looking at how much, like the government debt to GDP ratio has gone up. I mean, under the Obama administration, there were I think four years in a row where the federal budget deficit was higher than a trillion dollars. Okay, so you know it, it would be one thing if they borrowed all that money and that pushed up long-term yields to high levels, but we saw just the opposite. At the same time that you know the the government's debt was mushrooming, you saw yields plummet down to historic lows. So again, that just that seems a bit odd uh, as far as the stock market. Uh, look look at all the things you know. This is not just unique to the Austrians, but like Chicago school types also would would think a lot of the measures that the Obama administration took. You know, besides running big debts, they were threatening to you know regulate the the energy sector. They they, they came out with the so-called clean power plan, regulating uh, electricity and the electricity industry. Uh, you know, Obamacare, of course, uh, all sorts of measures put in place that you know would would hamper industry. You would not know. They even raise taxes on upper income earners. So the various things that you would think any one of which would not be good for the economy, and yet that went hand in hand with this booming stock market. So again, that just whereas if you if you charted the Fed's balance sheet against the S and P five hundred index up until uh, twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen, those things moved pretty much hand in glove. That when they had rounds of QE, you saw the stock market rise. When the QE stopped, the stock market was flat, and so on. Um, so it did rise a lot under Trump, even though Yellen held the Fed's balance sheet constant. So that's where that pattern broke down. But I'm saying all throughout the Obama years, the alleged recovery from this financial crisis, you know, it, to me, there were no fundamental reasons. Things should have gotten a lot better. And the only thing that really made sense and fit was that the Fed was pumping in unprecedented amounts of liquidity. And that's what pushed up stock prices. So, you know, sort of like if you don't believe the printing dollar bills electronically, as it were, is the path to prosperity, then I think you, know, you can believe that the stock market is way overvalued. Professor Murphy, you mentioned debt to GDP, central government debt, and this is something that people are increasingly focusing on. Would the Austrian school draw a distinction between external debt and domestic debt, which for listeners out there is just the difference between U.S. citizens and private entities holding government debt versus foreign entities like the Chinese government holding government debt? Is it worthwhile to break those out in your analysis of central government debt? I think there is a a distinction to be made, and for certain trains of thought, it might matter. So, for example, I I would feel more comfortable if you told me that the debt were going to be held domestically. Not And let me tell you why, and then I'll contrast it with another view that you might have in mind that I think is wrong. So the reason I would is that I think it's, you're, the, that Americans would be less likely to approve giant budget uh, government budget deficits if Americans themselves were the ones financing it, that I think that you'd see a bigger impact on interest rates, and so that might make them back off of it a little bit, so not be as excessive in how much they let the government get away with borrowing. Whereas if you're, if you're borrowing it from foreigners, there's more of a sense that you know the present generation of Americans is living at the expense of the future, 
because they're not even getting that immediate feedback as much. So I, I think that element is true. Um, however, in general, uh, there's this Keynesian notion that you know Paul Krugman and other writers have been uh, propounding in recent years, saying that the government debt isn't really a burden so long as quote we owe it to ourselves. In in general, I think that's actually a fallacy, and you know it gets complicated. But there's there's ways that the, the present generation can live at the expense of unborn future voters, even. Uh, if the debt is held in, internally, but but even so, I think yeah. If you if you made me choose, I would rather Americans financed it because I think that would cause interest rates to rise more rapidly and might make the government back off borrowing so much. This is going to be a slate shifting gears, and I've got a very short question to set up. Depending on your answer, a long question. You know, we've learned that the Austrian perspective is that the boom and bust cycle is driven primarily by easy money policies or generally central planning intervention of some sort that, you know, creates a bubble, um, some sort of malinvestment that, you know, overheats a market, be it the stock market, the housing market, et cetera. It's doomed to burst, has to burst, and then that drives the crash. Um, and that the Fed is, is, you know, the Fed's power to manipulate interest rates is fairly central in all of this. Is there an obvious way to improve the Fed's policy decision-making to avoid driving these bubbles. Do you want to take a shot at that first, Carl? Sir? <laughs> <laughs> I can say blanket no. <laughs> okay, well, here, I'll, well, I'll, I'll say some things and maybe Carlos Carl says no. Inspired. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the official, it'd be, it'd be like if you asked us, okay, given that the Soviet Union is going to centrally plan food production, you know, how many bushels of, how many bushels of wheat do you do next year? Right. So, so of course, you know, the, the appropriate answer is to say there is no right way to run the central bank that, you know, money should be privatized, money in banking should be returned to the private sector and, and so forth. Now, if you're going to say, okay, but that's not a fun answer, you know, your Fed chair next term, what do you do? In our book, uh, how privatized banking really works, we did come up with a plan for you know how could you put the U.S. dollar back on the gold standard, and so you know we went through it, and, and so it could be done. It's it, there's no there are no theoretical or conceptual problems with doing that, and certainly if the Fed chair were going to target something rather than targeting this amorphous two percent of personal consumption expenditure inflation. I, I would if if the Fed chair just said, you know what we're just gonna we we promise we're gonna lock in the current market spot price of gold and that's what it's gonna be forever and you know and the only time we'll issue new dollars is if people bring us new gold or whatever you know and so gradually make uh, the dollar get more and more to become a hundred percent convertible back into gold so that's a plan that Lily von Mises advocated for example so that would be great and and I think if they were to do that and stick to it that would be far preferable to what they do now that would really tie the hands of the governments around the world if they all went back to the classical gold standard. I mean, look, it's no coincidence. <laughs> Let me put it this way. Among other things, the classical gold standard prevented world war. And how do we know that? Because when World War I broke out, all the major powers except the U.S. went off the gold standard. So, I mean, among its virtues, you could say, ah, oh, yeah, if they had to stay honest and not be able to just to print money, then, you know, we can't have a world war. So that's kind of a, a feather in the cap of the gold standard. But Beyond that, yeah, it just limits the ability for the government or central banks to create money. The reason, though, now I'm not running up and down the streets, jumping up and down for a return to the gold standard is I think if you did it within the, you know, the the constraints or the political apparatus of central banks just targeting the price of gold, the moment the next major crisis hit, they would go, they would abandon it. And so I think that would just, you know, you would, it would forfeit credibility so that's why now I'm just more advocating that why we should have a, re, you know, get rid of the central bank altogether and return money and banking back to the private sector. But in terms of analyzing the different regimes, yeah, a gl classical gold standard would be far preferable to fiat money. Great. That's exactly where I, where I was hoping we would go with this, because one of the things in an earlier episode that just got published at time of recording, so you guys have had no chance to listen to it, we talk about the decline of the gold standard, because in the episode before that, we talk about some of the problems with the fiat currency. Um, and what's great is we're hearing some reflections between the, the fiat currency episode and, and what you guys are saying. And so we talked about, hey, the gold standard went away, and it was a process between 
you know, about 1934, 1976, we had moved from a true gold standard to a Brent, the Bretton Woods system that was trying to be supported by the London gold pool. And uh, this thing that I kind of understand called the Triffin Dilemma occurred um, that, you know, in order to keep the price of gold stable, the United States had to have more exports than imports and more imports than exports at the same time. Um what I'm wondering is what are the hurdles, you know, cause I think, I think you, if you just like Google up, like, you know, returning to the gold standard, you'd get like some guy's blog and you'd also get some, you know, some other articles by like CNBC or something saying absolutely impossible. We asked some economists, we didn't name them, but we asked some economists, they say it can't happen. Um, one of the biggest hurdles being just like the amount of gold that we would need to meet the spot price of what, $1,300 or so. Um, in order to actually back the U.S. dollars that are in circulation. Um, so I don't know if this can be said shortly, but if it can be said shortly, what would it actually take to return to the gold standard? And in particular, um, you know, how do we avoid the breakdown that we had last time? So sure. So if, if people want to Google um, Robert Murphy putting the country back on gold, Mises, and Mises is spelled M-I-S-E-S, you'll see an article I wrote so it's funny, Carlson and I went through the whole thing in our in our work trying to put the country back. And, and you're right, the part of the problem was how do you figure out what the new price will be, right? Because you, I mean, you probably wouldn't want to go back to the $35 an ounce that was prevailing when Nixon finally ended the, the close the gold window. Or you certainly wouldn't want to go back to the $20.67 when FDR came in and confiscated everyone's gold. By the way, brief tangent, but I hate it when, like in these articles you're talking about when economists will say things like, Oh, well, the, the gold standard, the classical gold standard led to insufferable problems, and that's why we abandoned it. No, we didn't do that. The government threatened people with a huge fine and jail time if they didn't turn over their gold at gunpoint. Okay, so <laughs> it's not the case that in the early 30s, Americans just said, wow, this yellow metal is really annoying and gave it to the government voluntarily. That's not what happened. Right. So, and just to tie stuff uh, back to the previous episode, that was the, I think the 1934 Gold Act, which the federal government made it illegal for private people to own gold. And they had to sell their gold to the government at $20.67 if you didn't like it too bad. Is that right? Right. <laughs> right but it's, it's crucial that the too bad means like prison. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it yeah, wasn't exactly. like a, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like a minor fine or something. So anyway, um, so yes, there are, there were problems and it's sort of arbitrary, like, well, gee, so what do we pick as the price? Um, and so Mises had a great proposal where he, you know, he was writing, I think he probably did this in like the fifties or the sixties. And he was just saying, no, the, what happens is the government announces like a, a transition period says, we're going to tire, you know, a, a country that used to be on the gold standard went off of it and now wants to resume, but it would be difficult to go to the old parity because they printed so much currency in the meantime they'd have to have a crushing price deflation so Mises says you don't need to do that um you just announce that you're going to start converting it and then you just look and you know you, once you make the announcement and everybody adjusts to the new reality you just look and like you can average it over two weeks or whatever and just say what is the average market price of gold quoted in our currency and then you just lock that in and then what you do is you say we do not our central bank or the treasury, you know, whatever is in charge of the currency, does not issue more notes un unless people come in and, and physically deposit that, you know, required amount of gold. And that, and so what would happen, if you think about that over time, then that means as more people, you know, deposit gold, you get 100% backing on any notes issued from that point forward. And so over time, you know, as the demand to hold that currency grow, you know, population grows or whatever, that more and more of the money stock would be backed 100% by gold at that price ratio. So it's not that you would literally have 100% reserves for the whole money stock, but over time you would, you know, the the ratio covered would get closer and closer to 100%. So, you know, and, and there's nothing arbitrary about the number he picked. It would have been the market price once everyone knew, oh, they're going back to gold. So I, that right there, I mean, that solves all the problems. So you wouldn't have this issue of, well, there's not enough gold in the world. Well, the price that you pick takes into account how much gold there is. So it's, um, I, I think a lot of those objections are silly. But for me, the objection that's not silly and the one that actually made me stop advocating the gold standard so much in terms of a, a, a policy proposal is just that I think I wouldn't trust them, that there's no, you can't force them. That Like sort of the mystique of the gold standard is gone. So, I mean, there's a story that, 
back in the 30s when Great Britain went off gold, the 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 head of the Exeter or something said something like, "This is the end of Western civilization." And Keynesians, you know, nowadays mock him for saying that, but it's kind of like, well, look what happened a few years after he said that. It basically was the end of Western civilization. Like, what else would have had to happen besides Nazi Germany and you know World War II and the firebombing of Dresden or whatever for you to say, yeah, that was a pretty you know awful thing that we unleashed. And again. The connection between the gold standard and war is not something I'm just making up and grasping at straws. I mean, it's well known governments had to abandon gold to be able to finance the war effort. So to answer your question, um, most of the objections that responsible economists give as to why gold wouldn't work anymore, I think, are silly. Uh, But the one that does kind of make sense to me is now since governments, you know, there's not this mystique, the public doesn't expect the money to be backed up by anything governments i think would just go off of it as soon as it got inconvenient i mean think of it this way wouldn't it be nice if whenever a household got into trouble and they couldn't meet their credit card bills they could just print money you know could you could you would you you trust the household with that kind of temptation and so okay you're going to trust a bunch of politicians but yet you realize okay that can't you know that's not really prosperity that just means they they get all the money holders to to pay for it right when the government prints money to pay its bills it's not making it free. That just means it's shifting the, the cost to other people. And yet it's and doing other, it in a really slippery way. And, 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 the, and the bigger problem is that, it, you know, government uh, has an enormous amount of bills. <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, and a lot of them started during the New Deal, you know. And so uh, governments never had any money. And so, uh, you know, they've got to have that, that ability to print that money. Because they've got so many expenses that they've got to pay, and so uh, you know, going back to the gold standard, I, I mean, I agree with Bob. I mean, they're not going to stay on it for very long because they they can't ever they can't ever uh, you know get get current on their bills. They just keep mounting up, and so we're 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 at a stage now that um, all I can see is 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 just a major correction down the road that's going to be pretty severe on everybody. Carlos, looking at some recent policy then in in the the world of economics and coming from the corporate world, life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry. And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I want to ask you a, l- a little bit about the, the, the recent tax bill that was passed. There is one narrative that exists in modern economic political discourse that is essentially labels trickle-down economics as pejorative, free market policies as negative and unfairly benefiting you know, wealthy people by lowering the, the tax burden. Well, not by lowering the tax burden, but this tax bill lowers the tax burden for wealthy people. How how would Austrians look at this tax bill? How do Austrians think about those narratives that exist about free market policies and trickle down? And what is your response to that, having actually lived in that world for so many decades? Well, once again, um, uh, when I first started hearing about the tax reform coming up, I mean, I uh, I actually was worried simply because I saw what happened during the last major tax reform. Uh, Obviously, uh, they have uh, lowered corporate taxes, uh, you know, and so that is good for corporations. Uh, Obviously, a lot of 
major companies had you know kept their money abroad and they they were actually you know cutting some special deals on all those companies and a lot of money has come back into the country so some of those those maneuvers uh, that I saw happen uh, with this latest tax reform actually I thought you know we're good um, if you if you if you look closer at what was going on with some of the the, the taxes for the individual uh, there was you know there were some breaks but then there were some people that are actually going to wind up paying a little bit more taxes so you know overall um, the question of was it good for corporate America for these taxes to you know to be um, to be lowered. Uh, the way they were. Uh, I think that on, on, on the front end, what I do see happening is that a lot of business owners right now uh, are uh, positive about, um, you know, wanting to expand. Now, I worry because <laughs> uh, I, I think it can be a false signal. Okay, that but they but they are you know the latest uh, statistics I saw on on the small uh, business administration some of the num some of the they were gauging the optimism of business owners and they were all very optimistic about the future simply because taxes are at at the at a, at a good level now and they're ready to hire people I guess one of the big problems they were having is that they have jobs and they want to hire people. They just can't get people to pass drug tests right now. This has been one of the things that I hear being said a lot. So uh, I do think that overall uh, business as a whole is feeling positive about the recent, you know, uh, tax reform. Now, I think, I think that there's so, so much other stuff going on that's not good that could cause this whole thing to this optimism can become unraveled so very quickly. And these are the things that I don't, I don't think that, you know, that people actually, uh, you know, really understand. And so they're, they're dealing with just the immediate effects of what just happened. And so there is, there is optimism there. So uh, I don't know if that's a, the answer you're looking for. I would say from that standpoint that it has raised the, uh, the, the optimistic, the level of business owners, I think that is good. Yeah, if I could just jump in, it's it's funny. Um, Carlos is actually, we were doing uh, an analysis of the tax plan. This wasn't the one that was actually signed into law, but it was when I think this, either, I can't remember if it was a House or Senate version, but as they were getting bounced around in the fall, I guess, of what, 2017. And uh, for the Laura Murphy report, we did an analysis and Carlos was actually the one who alerted me to it. He was like, Bob, have you looked at this stuff? I mean, it, he was showing how heavily tilted in favor of the very wealthy a lot of these provisions were. So, uh, you know, in general, Austrians, of course, you know, particularly in the tradition of Murray Rothbard, they, they think that taxation is theft. And so you lower the amount of, that you're taking, that the government's taking money from the private sector. That's always a good thing. But um, Austrians tend not to be as much in favor of, like, tax cuts per se without regard to you know well, who's getting what like austrians are, tend to be more cynical about well wait a minute how come they're getting the tax break out probably because they're you know they're big political donors and you know as usual the middle class is just getting pittances so it, it's it's ironic a, a lot of some of the austrian rhetoric you would have seen regarding the recent tax legislation um would would not sound like something that necessarily art laffer would say but of course you know Austrians are typically in favor of, of lower taxes, no matter what. And of course, you know, uh, we all know the, the story that these, these, these taxes, the lower of these taxes are going to increase the deficit that much more. And uh, we've just been talking about uh, the, the bonds that are out there. Well, I, I, they just auctioned off, what, another $250 billion in, in, in bonds, you know, to, to, to cover the deficit. So <laughs> it's it's these other things that are going on uh, that sort of you know clouds over the initial optimism of this lowering of the tax. Uh, these other problems that are out there that um, is 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 where the worry is. I want to dig into this just a bit further before we close out. So um, 
you know, in particular, I think opponents of a you know a, a tax bill where most of the most of the cut is going to the wealthy. And I know like there's all sorts of even just philosophical problems with saying that because you kind of go like, well, it's, you know, is it a handout if it was their money in the first place? But putting all that all aside, let's just think from a, like a raw economics perspective. We're saying, Hey, look, we're making a tax cut. And the, the majority of the revenue that we're not taking in next year is going to be in the pockets of wealthy people rather than um, rather than in the pockets of the government. And we're not, you know, just keeping the taxes on the wealthy the same and, and lowering taxes on the lower classes. Um, a lot of people would look at this and say, you know, this is trickle down economics and and therefore silly. And, you know, I'm going to just define kind of the pejorative sense of trickle down economics, which says, oh, if you give rich people money, they'll find a way for some of that money to get to the lower classes through creating jobs and such. Um, you know, to to be a little honest, I've always figured like I've always figured that the the proponents of tax cuts for corporations or or tax cuts in general have a more sophisticated view of what's supposed to be going on than simply that. And I was wondering if you had a response to you know someone saying like, look, that's just trickle down. You know why why give a billion dollars to the top when a thousand dollars is going to reach the guy on the bottom? Um, what's that? You know what's actually the theory behind that? Okay, well, sure. So one thing is, I see, I'm going to make sure I say this, because otherwise, the people who think this way are going to be mad that I haven't brought it up. I don't know that anyone has ever used the phrase trickle down in in a positive sense, right? So in other words, that's like a slur that was invented to (laughs) hang around the necks of the people advocating it. On the other hand, though, I certainly have heard supply side economists saying things like, even lowering tax rate, you know, like lowering capital gains taxes will lead to job creation, stuff like that. So certainly a lot of their rhetoric lines up with what the critics are then decrying as trickle down. Um, let me just challenge. I mean, some people put it to you this way. A lot of the same people who are absolutely certain that, quote, tax cuts for the rich will not in any way help the middle class or the poor. By the same token, if I said, oh, OK, so. If the government levies a big tax on, uh, you know, Best Buy, that every TV they sell, the Best Buy shareholders got to pay fifty percent in extra tax to the government. Really stick it to the shareholders of Best Buy, huh? I think most people would cynically say, "Nah, Best Buy will just pass that on to their customers. TV prices will go way up." So you, my point is, you can't have it both ways. Like, if anytime you think the government tried to tax the rich, they would somehow pass it on to the little guy. Well, then, okay, then that means a tax cut for the rich also would have to somehow you know be passed on the form of lower prices or or, or higher wages or some combination so right. uh, the way economists generally analyze that stuff is they say you know it, the, it matters what the particular tax is and what the market is and the so-called elasticities so in general you, you can't know um, I would say so to summarize I personally think the GOP plan was silly in terms of the optics in other words given how much they were going to let the deficit go up in terms of the static projections, I think they should have just had an across the board equal rate reduction or at best or, you know, at worst, I should say, like, you know, the the percentages allocated so that it it did look like more like a tax cut for everybody. Whereas, yeah, when you look at something and and again, this is stuff that we did in the Laura Murphy report showing like, geez, this really does look like a top heavy tax cut. And it's mostly concentrated on corporate income tax cutting. So in, in defense of the people who did that. It is true that if that the standard economics literature says that the ca- taxing capital is the worst kind of tax in terms of slowing economic growth and job creation and so on. But again, I just think politically that was why did they do that? That just that just looked look, looked so bad. Why did they try to give more broad based tax reform and tax cutting for, for, you know, the house, the middle class and the poor, obviously the ones most living on the edge. And so even put efficiency aside just in terms of common decency to reduce the government, how much the government's taken from people, I would have advised them if they were going to listen to me to, to give bigger tax cuts to the middle class and poor. Oh, gosh, I, I actually just want to stay on the phone with you guys all night, but I know you guys have families and it's getting to be late uh, here, actually kind of all across the board in the United States. Um, so, so what I first want to say is thank you both so much for joining us uh, and sharing so much about what you've learned about the economy. Well, thanks well, for having us. And, uh, it was a Thank you for having us. <laughs>
And as a parting note to our listeners, um, hope you guys enjoyed this much, this as much as we did. And, you know, obviously I think the, the reconsider moment for us is that, you know, what I've really enjoyed about this series is that we've had a bit of a almost unintentional back and forth as we've told different stories from different perspectives about the history of, you know, major economic events and crises in the United States that every time we think we've really got it figured out and you go, oh, that story seems to make a lot of sense. Um, the, the thing we have to realize is that there are a whole lot of assumptions, premises, and limited perspectives that go into that, that we need to challenge. Um, and so it's one of our favorite series, or it's one of our favorite topics to explore because there's so much to learn uh, and so much we don't know. Uh, but at the same time, it's also one of the topics we're most afraid of to talk about because we're just always afraid of saying, oh, it works this way and we're wrong. Um, so what we're hoping is that this series has really meant as much to you as it has to us, that you've learned as much as we have. Um, and what we're ultimately aiming is that you walk out with some questions about what you previously believed was ironclad and true and obvious. Mr. Lara and Professor Murphy, thanks again for joining us and have a great night. Okay, good night. Thanks for having us. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.